Hello all, wherever in the world you are listening from, we are back with another episode of Songs for FRCR. As we are approaching exams and everyone is getting increasingly busy, episodes are published ad hoc rather than the usual Sunday night, so if you want to be the first to know when episodes are available and to download any associated visual aids or handouts, give us a follow on Twitter at Songs4F and you will get an alert. So today we are doing the phacomatoses. It's a topic that we all learn a thousand times and forget it five thousand times. But after today, it's going to be embedded in your long-term memory. Most of these patients will present with seizures. So with that in mind, we've picked an appropriate cover of a famous Taylor Swift song. So here we go, the phacomatoses. The first disease on our whistle-stop tour of the phacomatoses is neurofibromatosis 1. There are two things you need to remember about NF1. The first is age at presentation. Half of people with NF1 will be diagnosed by the age of 1. And practically all of them, 97%, will be diagnosed by the age of 8. That is fact number 1. The second thing you absolutely have to memorise are the diagnostic criteria. Exam questions are often worded as follows. Which of the following is not a criterion for the diagnosis of NF1? So you have to know them to pick out the odd one out. Right, the way I remember them is with my own mnemonic. The mnemonic I use is scornful. I know there are other mnemonics out there. If they work for you, then great. Scornful works for me. I remember it as if someone has all of these problems and neurofibromas and cafe au lait spots everywhere, they're going to be in a bad mood. They're going to be scornful. And the S and the C of scornful stands for six cafe au lait spots. The S stands for six and the C is cafe. So they need more than six cafe au lait spots in one year. That's the first criterion. The O, there are two O's, optic nerve glioma and osseous lesions. Not any osseous lesions, lesions that are distinctive to NF1, in particular sphenoid wing dysplasia. So from the top, S, C in scornful are six cafe au lait spots. So more than six cafe au lait spots in the period of one year. 
The O's are optic nerve glioma and osseous lesions, in particular sphenoid wing dysplasia. The R stands for relative. You need to have a first degree relative with neurofibromatosis 1. The N stands for neurofibromas, so you need either two or more neurofibromas or a single plexiform neurofibroma. The F is freckling, axillary or inguinal freckling. There's no U and the L are lish nodules, lish or lich. You need two or more lich nodules. These are iris hamartomas. So from the top, neurofibromatosis 1, 50% diagnosed by the age of 1, almost all are diagnosed by the age of 8. You must remember the diagnostic criteria. You need two or more of the following, of scornful, six more than six cafe au lait spots, optic nerve glioma, osseous lesions, particularly sphenoid wing dysplasia, a first degree relative, neurofibromas, either two or more regular neurofibromas or one plexiform neurofibroma, freckling, axillary or inguinal freckling, there's no U and the L are lich nodules which are iris hamartomas. That is the list of diagnostic criteria. The last couple of points before we move on. The first is NF1 is one of the causes of posterior vertebral body scalloping. The second point I want to mention is it is caused by inactivation of a tumour suppressor gene. So these guys are at risk of lots and lots of tumours. Do not learn this list. It is a colossal waste of time and it includes almost every tumour you can think of. The ones to note in particular are Wilms tumour, renal AMLs and geomyolipomas, and pheochromocytoma. So NF1 from the top, 50% are diagnosed at one year. By the age of eight, practically all of them have been diagnosed. The diagnostic criteria are as follows. They are the mnemonic scornful. Feel free to use your own mnemonics. SC are uh, more than six cafe au lait spots in the space of one year. Optic nerve glioma and osseous lesions, particularly sphenoid wing dysplasia. R is relative, a first degree relative. N is neurofibromas. You need two or more neurofibromas or a single plexiform neurofibroma. F is freckling, axillary or inguinal freckling, and there's no U, L, R, lich nodules, two or more. So you need two or more of these diagnostic criteria. The tumours that are most commonly in exam questions mentioned being associated with NF1 are Wilms, renal AMLs and pheochromocytoma. They are a cause of posterior vertebral body scalloping. That was neurofibromatosis 1. Take a break, we'll come back with NF2.
neurofibromatosis 2 is not going to take anywhere near as long as its predecessor because it's fairly straightforward. Despite its name, there are no neurofibromas. They are not a feature of NF2. This is called MISME. The disease is called MISME because it stands for multiple inherited schwannomas, meningiomas and ependymomas. And the name tells you pretty much everything you need to know. It will present in young adults aged between 18 and 25. Compare that to NF1 where the age of presentation is much younger. So we said MISME, multiple inherited schwannomas, meningiomas and ependymomas. The schwannomas, first of all, are usually vestibular. Bilateral vestibular schwannomas are diagnostic for NF2. That's the S. The M is meningiomas. Meningiomas will occur in the brain and in the spine. And the final letter was E, ependymomas. These are intraspinal, intramedullary ependymomas and are often associated with syringohydromyelia and cataracts. That's pretty much it for NF2. We'll go over it one more time. It's called MISME, Multiple Inherited Schwannomas, Meningiomas and Ependymomas. It presents in young adults. The schwannomas are vestibular and bilateral vestibular schwannomas are diagnostic of NF2. The meningiomas occur both in the brain and the spine and the ependymomas are intraspinal, intramedullary and often associated with syringohydromyelia and cataracts. That's it. That was NF1 and NF2. Take a quick break and we'll come back with Von Hippel Lindau. Let's move on now to Von Hippel-Lindau, VHL. It's a disease of lots of tumours, both benign and malignant. Most people will have their first tumour by the age of 26. That's the average age of the first tumour. I remember Von Hippel-Lindau with the mnemonic HARP, H-A-R-P. FYI, before I start getting emails from the countdown dictionary corner types of listeners, I am well aware of the difference between a mnemonic and an acronym, but I will use them both interchangeably because I am cool like that. So, VHL, the mnemonic, the acronym even, that I gave you was HARP. H is hemangioblastoma. The other brain lesion is a choroid plexus papilloma. So H is hemangioblastoma or choroid plexus papilloma. Both of those are features of VHL. If you don't remember what they look like, head back to the brain tumours episode. Give those another listen. The A in HARP is adrenal. And 
by adrenal, I mean pheochromocytoma. The A in HARP stands for adrenal, and by adrenal, I mean specifically a pheochromocytoma. So we have H. So far, H was hemangioblastoma and choroid plexus papilloma. A was adrenals, and the lesion here was a pheochromocytoma. The R in HARP stands for renal, and there are three things. You have renal cell carcinomas. In 70%, these are bilateral. You also have lots of renal cysts and AML, angiomyolipoma. So from the top, HARP, H is hemangioblastoma and choroid plexus papilloma. A is adrenal, specifically a pheochromocytoma. The R stands for renal, renal cell carcinoma, bilateral in 70%, renal cysts and the AML, angiomyolipoma. And finally, the P stands for pancreas. They have pancreatic cysts, pancreatic neuroendocrine tumours, pancreatic adenocarcinoma and pancreatic serous cystadenoma. If you don't remember the different pancreatic cystic lesions or lesions in general, refer back to the pancreatic tumours episode from back in December. So VHL, quickly to recap VHL, it is a disease of lots of benign and malignant tumours. They will present with their first tumour around the age of 25-26 and you need to know the main ones they tend to mention in exams. The main ones I've put together in the acronym HARP. H is hemangioblastoma and a choroid plexus papilloma. The A is for adrenal, specifically pheochromocytoma. The R is renal, renal cell carcinoma, bilateral in 70%, renal cysts and angiomyolipomas. The P is for pancreas, so pancreatic cysts, neuroendocrine tumours, adenocarcinoma and the serous cyst adenoma. That was Ron Hippel Lindau in three minutes. So far, we've done neurofibromatosis 1 and 2 and Von Hippel-Lindau. We move on next to Sturge Weber. Take a break. Sturge Weber, unless you're going to be a neuroradiologist, you just need to learn the key points that will give you the mark in an exam. So Sturge Weber, what do you need to know? First of all, they will have a facial port wine stain. It's called a port wine stain. What it is, is a cutaneous hemangioma. This will be in the distribution of the ophthalmic division of the trigeminal nerve. If it's in any other distribution, then Sturge Weber is unlikely. Also, most of these patients, 70%, will have the intracranial abnormality that I'll tell you about on the same side as the port wine stain. So I've said they have a port wine stain, a cutaneous hemangioma, in the distribution of the ophthalmic division of the trigeminal nerve. 
in 70% of cases, all their brain abnormalities will be on the same side as the port wine stain. The second thing to remember is presentation. Many of them will present with refractory childhood seizures. So that's the clinical stuff out of the way, but we don't care about that. We're radiologists. We want to know about the imaging. So let's start with CT. There are three things you need to know about CT findings in Sturge-Weber. The first is you get subcortical gyriform calcification. This calcification gives rise to the tram track sign. That's a dead giveaway in an exam in the right clinical context. So subcortical gyriform calcification giving you a tram track sign is the first CT feature of Sturge-Weber. The second is parenchymal volume loss. That's easy. And the third one is ipsilateral enlargement of the choroid plexus. We'll say those again. There are three features of Sturge-Weber on CT. The first is subcortical gyriform calcification, which give you a tram track sign. The second is parenchymal volume loss. And the third is ipsilateral choroid plexus enlargement. What will you see on MRI? Well, when you give contrast with the T1 weighted imaging, you will see leptomeningeal enhancement. Because there is this subcortical gyriform calcification, this will show up as low signal on the T2 imaging. And finally, with spectroscopy, you will have decreased NAA. Let's go over imaging one more time. So on CT, we're going to see three things. Subcortical gyriform calcification, giving you a tram track sign. Volume loss of the parenchyma and ipsilateral enlargement of the choroid plexus. On MR, we will see leptomeningeal enhancement on the post-contrast T1 weighted imaging and the subcortical gyriform enhancement will show up as low T2 signal. On spectroscopy, there will be decreased NAA. So we're going to take Sturge-Weber again from the top. Don't groan, you will thank me for this one day. Sturge-Weber, the first feature is a facial port wine stain, a cutaneous hemangioma in the distribution of the ophthalmic division of the trigeminal nerve. If it's not in the ophthalmic division, it probably isn't Sturge-Weber. So be careful if you're going to choose it in an exam. The second thing to remember, most people, 70%, will have the intracranial problems on the same side as the port wine stain. They will present with refractory childhood seizures if the patient is a child in your exam. And imaging. On CT, there are three things. The first is subcortical gyriform calcification, which gives you the tram track sign. Number two is volume loss of the parenchyma. And number three is ipsilateral choroid plexus enlargement. On the T1 post-contrast MR imaging, you will see leptomeningeal enhancement. And on T2, the calcification, the subcortical gyriform calcification will show up as low signal. On spectroscopy, 
the NAA peak will be low. You'll get reduced NAA. That's Sturge Weber. Take a break and we'll very quickly whiz through face syndrome. I'm going to quickly mention FACE syndrome, spelt P-H-A-C-E, which of course is an acronym for the abnormalities that you get in the syndrome. I'm not going to go into any detail because I've never seen it in an exam as the correct answer. It's usually often there as a filler, so be aware of what it is. FACE syndrome, the P is posterior fossa malformations, particularly Dandy Walker. H is hemangiomas. A is arterial anomalies, it's nice and vague. C is coarctation and cardiac anomalies. And E is eye anomalies. I'll say it one more time, just so you're aware of what it is. But I rarely, I don't think I've ever seen it as the correct answer in any exam question. So, face syndrome. P is posterior fossa malformations, particularly Dandy Walker. H is hemangiomas, A is arterial anomalies, C is coarctation and cardiac anomalies, and E is eye anomalies. That is face syndrome. Take a very quick break and we will end with everybody's favourite, tuberous sclerosis. Everybody's favourite tuberous sclerosis presents with the classic triad of seizures, mental retardation and adenoma sebation. That's the classic triad but is only present in around 30% of cases. It's a lot more important that you are aware of the other features outside of this triad and I'm going to split them up into brain, abdomen and thorax. We're going to start with the brain and the two features of tuberous sclerosis in the brain that you need to know are cortical or subcortical tubers and subependymal hematomas. Let's start with the cortical tubers first. So these are hamartomas. They're cortical if they involve the cortex. They're subcortical if they start to dip into the underlying white matter and involve that also. So these cortical or subcortical tubers are simply hamartomas. These hamartomas are triangular shaped lesions that will have their apex pointing inwards towards the ventricles. These are a key feature of tuberous sclerosis between 95 and 100% of patients will have cortical and subcortical tubers. In 50 to 80% they are in the frontal lobes 
and on imaging they will be low signal on T1 and high signal on T2. The only exception to this high T2 signal is in neonates because they have unmyelinated tissue and that can mean they are iso-intense on T2. So in neonates you may well be relying on the T1 imaging to see the tubers. The cortical, subcortical tubers can calcify, although this isn't very common, and the treatment is usually symptomatic control because the tubers are often responsible for the patient's epilepsy. If symptomatic control is not sufficient with medication, anti-epileptics, then surgical resection of the tubers has shown to be effective. So, let's go from the beginning. Tuberous sclerosis is a syndrome, a triad of seizures, mental retardation and adenoma sebation. But that's not important. It's only a feature in 30% of cases. The key things that we need to know about tuberous sclerosis are the lesions you will get in the brain, the abdomen and the thorax. We're starting with the brain and there are two types of lesions in the brain. They're both hamartomas. The hamartomas in the cortical and subcortical area we call tubers. And these tubers are simply triangular shaped hamartomas with their apex pointing towards the ventricles. They are present in practically every patient with tuberous sclerosis. 50 to 80% in the frontal lobes. They will be low on T1 and high signal on T2 unless the patient is a neonate, in which case they may well not be visible on T2. They may be iso-intense on T2. Most of them will not enhance. Only around 10% will enhance and they also mostly will not calcify, although it's possible. Treatment is anti-seizure medication but surgical resection is an option. That's cortical or subcortical tubers. The next brain lesion is again the same hamartomas but in a subappendimal location. These are present again in a large majority of patients in 80% of patients. You will see them from six months onwards and the majority of these will calcify, so 88% will calcify. Remember, calcification was not particularly common with the cortical subcortical tubers, although possible, it was not common. In the subappendimal hamartomas, calcification is very, very common. Almost all of them will calcify. The only exception, again, is small babies. So what will you see? What will the subependymal hamartomas look like? They will be small intraventricular mass lesions, usually less than a centimetre. Appearance on MRI is variable depending on calcification. Enhancement patterns are also very variable. Often, most commonly, they'll be high on T1 and high on T2. If you remember back from the brain tumours part 2 episode, you will know that subependymal nodules or subependymal hamartomas can in fact become SEGA, subependymal giant cell astrocytoma. So how will we know if these are simple subependymal nodules or if they have become SEGA? 
the short answer is the only real way to know is to follow them and observe for serial growth. There's no other way. Both Sega and subependymal nodules can enhance. Although Sega tends to enhance a lot more avidly and intensely, it's not enough of a reliable distinguishing factor. The only way to tell is to observe and look at size. So serial increase in size suggests that the subependymal nodule has become a Sega, a subependymal giant cell astrocytoma. I'm just going to recap subependymal hamartomas because I have waffled on a little bit and I want to make sure it's nice and clear in your mind. So subependymal hamartomas are the second type of hamartomas I've been talking about in tuberous sclerosis. The first type were subcortical and cortical tubers or hamartomas. These were triangular lesions with the apex pointing towards the ventricle. These were lesions in the cortex and the subcortical area, present in 95 to 100% of patients with tuberous sclerosis and 50 to 80% in the frontal lobes. Remember, these were low signal on T1 and high signal on T2, unless they were neonates, in which case they'll be iso and probably invisible on T2. Enhancement is unusual, 10% or so will enhance, and calcification is also unusual, and if it does happen, usually after the age of 2. The cortical or subcortical tubers are often the cause of epilepsy in patients with tuberous sclerosis, and resection is a viable option should medical management not be sufficient. That was the first type of hamartoma, the cortical subcortical tubers. The second type were subependymal hamartomas, which occur in 80% of patients with tuberous sclerosis. Unlike the first group, the vast majority of these will be calcified. 88% will calcify. The only exception are very small babies. They'll be visible from six months onwards as small intraventricular masses measuring less than a centimetre. MRI imaging is variable due to calcification and variable enhancement patterns, but generally you'll find they are high signal on both T1 and T2. Compare that to the subcortical tubers which were low signal on T1 and high signal on T2, the subependymal hamartomas are high signal on both. If you remember back from the brain tumours episodes, you will know that subependymal nodules can become Sega, subependymal giant cell astrocytoma. So how will you know that the subependymal nodule has become a Sega? The only way to tell is by doing serial growth measurements. If the nodule is getting bigger, if it's larger than a centimetre, then it is more likely to be a Sega. Sagas do tend to enhance avidly and intensely, but because enhancement is variable with regular subependymal nodules, it's not strong enough of a differentiating factor. So that's your two brain lesions. They are subcortical and cortical tubers 
and subependymal hamartomas. Let's leave the brain alone and move on to abdomen. Abdomen is nice and straightforward, not much to say. The main things in exams they like to talk about with tuberous sclerosis are kidney things. So renal angiomyolipomas, very, very common. Up to 75% of patients will have AMLs. They'll usually be big and they'll usually be bilateral. Renal cysts are also common with tuberous sclerosis and renal cell carcinoma is also a recognised complication. Let's move on now to the thoracic manifestations of tuberous sclerosis of which there are two. The first is cardiac and I've already mentioned it, it's a rhabdomyoma. These are hamartomatous type lesions, usually within the ventricular septum, although they can occur anywhere. The vast majority, 75%, are diagnosed before the age of one and don't need treatment. Most of them, 70%, will regress of their own accord. They are very strongly associated with tuberous sclerosis. Half of babies diagnosed with a rhabdomyoma will go on to be diagnosed with tuberous sclerosis. So there's a strong association. The other important manifestation of tuberous sclerosis within the thorax is a disease that is very similar to LAM. LAM is lymphangioleomyomatosis and we've already covered LAM in the talk on interstitial lung disease. If you want to recap and remember what that looks like, refer back to the lung disease talk and the handout that went with it. Last but not least, I have seen exam questions mention hypomelanotic macules on the skin in patients with tuberous sclerosis called ash leaf spots. So it may be worth remembering that also. So a very quick gross recap of tuberous sclerosis it is a triad of seizures, adenoma sebaceum and mental retardation which you'll only see in 30% of cases. The manifestations of tuberous sclerosis are divided into brain, abdomen and thorax. In the brain we talked about hamartomas, subcortical and cortical hamartomas called tubers and subependymal hamartomas or subependymal nodules. In the abdomen we mentioned renal mass lesions, so AML, angiomyolipomas, renal cysts, renal cell carcinoma and we then in the thorax mentioned rhabdomyoma and a thoracic disease very similar to LAM, lymphangioleomyomatosis. I also briefly mentioned ash leaf spots which are hypomelanotic macules in the skin, again strongly associated with tuberous sclerosis. So that's your lot, that's the phacomatoses. We have done neurofibromatosis 1, neurofibromatosis 2, von Hippel-Lindau, Sturge-Weber, face syndrome and finally tuberous sclerosis. Hope you enjoyed that episode, hope you learnt something and hope it gives you lots of marks in the exam. 
keep revising. You're hitting the home stretch now. Exam is not far away. Good luck and we'll see you next time.